want RUF to be a safe place to experience Jesus Christ through his word and through his people. And what, what I mean by that is we want this to be, and we're aiming for this to be a room that you get to bring the real you into, and you don't have to leave your frustrations, your pain, or what actually, like maybe your real doubts, your questions, maybe they're pretty sharp-edged questions about is there any truth to this stuff? We don't want this to be a place where you got to leave all of that out there. What good would that do? So we're trying to make this a place that's hospitable to whatever's going on in your life and whatever live questions, real questions, doubts, confusions, desires to grow, desires to change, actually inhabit your heart. Now, uh, we don't want this to just be a place where you get to bring the real you, because then you might feel some empathy and some patience with where you're at, but what if we're all just stuck where we are forever? So we're aiming and wanting and praying for this to also be a community where you get to encounter the real God. And what I mean by that is, this is a place where the whole aspiration, the whole purpose of this ministry is to help you see and know God as he's revealed himself in scripture. Do you need help seeing and knowing, walking with, loving God? I do. I feel it intensely right now, tonight, walking up here. So if you feel your need for to have someone help you follow him and know him and see him and love him, we hope you're at a, a safe place to do that. We hope you're home in one sense. We need you to help us with that as well and help make this a place that I said we want it to become. Now, here's another thing we do at RUF every single week. We open up the Bible and we read it together. Some of you might be thinking, well, why are you opening up the Bible if you just said this is a safe place for people who might not even believe it or know whether they really buy it or not? Is it really God's word or a bunch of people's words about God? Is it a religious book or is it the real interpretation of reality? Here's why we still open the book, knowing that the room has all kinds of different people in it. This, God's word, is what wrestles with and engages and illumines doubt skepticism, unbelief, this is what does that. This is also the same word of God that grows those who believe it, that creates faith, cultivates it, and changes people. So we believe it's supremely relevant and helpful for everybody in the room, no matter where you are or who you are, that this is what we do together. We got a little bit less time together this year, right? Because we already had a full house last time and we have you here now, and so we're trying to compress this a little bit. So what we're going to do tonight is look at a brief passage in Jeremiah. It's on the sheet that was in your seat. We're looking at the Gospel of John this fall, but we're not going to start there tonight because that's not where we are right now. We're coming out of 2020. We're actually right in the middle of it. And 2020 is, well, you know, exactly what it's been like, including little stuff like our best laid plans for a projector that usually works, just not working tonight. What a metaphor of our year. Nothing seems to be going right this year. So it's left a lot of us at a place of just true profound disorientation, where we're left just, I don't know how to navigate this. And the pandemic, if it's done one thing, it's leveled the playing field because it does not matter if you're Kenyan or Argentinian or Chinese or American, you're disoriented. Nobody has a leg up on this. Everybody's at a place of weakness and dependence and wondering 
when does this lift? Now, here's where things get even harder. It's not as if we were just dealing with COVID. And by the way, we're not going to talk about this every single week, Lord willing. (laughs) But we need to talk about it tonight because it's how we're entering the room. But in addition to COVID and all this stuff, think about all the other stuff that's happened this year. Economic collapse, some of which has touched your parents or you. You seniors, your job prospects are very different than they were a year ago when we all thought just float out of UGA into a job. And the kind of summer that we experienced, watching the kind of videos that we had to watch, and seeing a mask torn off of injustice that's been there for centuries, but now we were made to look at it in its ugly face. So you say there's a pandemic layered with injustice, layered with what that injustice has led to and people's responses to it, layered with economic collapse, layered with your own personal baggage too. You're the freshman, you're the transfer, and you're wondering, how do I get to know people when I can't eat with them and they can't come into my room? Disoriented, right? That's how we feel. I know we're a little excited now because we're like back together, school's starting, but disoriented. Disoriented. And that's what's happening in this passage we're about to read from the book of Jeremiah. The people of God disoriented. Here's a sentence or two of context. This is a letter that God had his prophet Jeremiah write to his people, known as the Jews, the Israelites, right after, a few months after they had lost it all. The Babylonians' reputation precedes themselves. You've probably heard of them if you know anything about history. Brutal people, conquerors, really good at conquering. And they conquered the Jews, the Israelites, and they forcibly exported them, like trail of tears kind of stuff, a forced removal from their homeland into captivity in Babylon. The Jews lost everything. And they're living in the backyard of their arch enemy's land as captives. No freedom, no creature comforts, no control over their life that they used to have. The status quo is gone, and they're navigating a new normal. They're disoriented. And God in his kindness through this word and this letter orients them in the midst of disorientation. And he does for us too. This is the word of the Lord, Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom King Nebuchadnezzar, the geopolitical bully on the block, had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the letter said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Now he's saying, not Nebuchadnezzar did it, but I did it. From Jerusalem to Babylon, here's how you should live in your enemy's backyard, in this inhospitable, disorienting place. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that you may bear sons and daughters and multiply here and not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to me on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Your fate is tied together, he's saying. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, don't let your prophets and your diviners, he says, not my prophets, but your prophets and diviners, don't let them who are among you deceive you. Don't listen to them, to the dreams that they dream, for it's a lie, and they're prophesying to you in my name, and I didn't send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years 
are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promises and bring you back to this place, Jerusalem, where God dwells with his people in the temple. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I'll hear you. You'll seek me, and you'll find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. Let's pray. Jesus, this passage speaks of you. It reveals you who stepped into exile for our sake to bring us home to this place. God says you will bring your people. So tonight, please clear the clutter in these next brief few minutes we have cleared away, clear a path into our hearts, our minds, our heads, our hands, and our lives that you might speak to your people. We need it, and you love to do it, so we pray to you. Amen. Well, two nights ago, me and some folks from RUF were up in the North Georgia mountains at a house. We were doing a a leadership retreat, kind of getting ready for the semester, and a bunch of us were in this house. And me and some folks were in the kitchen, kind of helping get breakfast stuff ready, and a guy named Will Kendrick Holmes, who uh, many of you know, saunters in right around the time we're putting food on the table, and I'm just making small talk. Will, how'd you sleep? Will's response, nonchalant, and didn't elaborate, just said, it was pretty good. I woke up in a chokehold. That's the end of his explanation. So I'm like, Will, pray tell, how did you wake up into a chokehold? And he said, uh, what had happened the night before, Ben Latner um, and uh, Will were sleeping in a king-size bed, and they were doing the guy thing back to back, hug the edges, get as far away as you can. And somehow, Will wakes up at like three in the morning, and Ben has him in a chokehold and is yelling at him, who are you? Who are you? And trying to breathe and say it, he's like, Will, Will, what are you doing in my bed? <laughs> and he goes, sleeping. <laughs> and they have this moment, Will says, where they like connect eyes and like he can tell Ben has finally woken up and realized what is happening and he just lets go and he's like, and then they go to sleep. And because, <laughs> because they're guys, they don't mention it again until I ask how he slept. What's interesting about this is if you know Ben Latner, he's not this, he's not that guy, like dripping in testosterone, this jock who's just ready to crush people. He's this sweet, gentle guy whose fight or flight response is very well honed. <laughs> in his defense, he said he woke up and found a strange man in his bed, which I think does warrant physical aggression, but he, what was interesting about this is it was so uncharacteristic of Ben surprising to hear him do that. Now, here's the point and why I tell the story. When you're disoriented, surprising and uncharacteristic things come out of you because you're disoriented. You don't know the lay of the land. Who are these people? Where am I? Ben's in a new house, and he's, for all he knows, there is a strange guy in his bed that needs to be choked. When you're disoriented, surprising and uncharacteristic things come out of you. So, I just said a few minutes ago, if I persuaded you, we're all disoriented. 
None of us really know where we are, have our bearings. We don't know how tonight was going to go. Never done this before. We're all disoriented. What's been exposed in you? What surprising and uncharacteristic things have you found peeking out of your heart these past six months? Is it kind of bitter complaint and grumbling? Is it complete disengagement, kind of just going to stoically float above the fray? This isn't that big of a deal. Um, Is it despair? Census Bureau released a survey last week that said 30% of 18 to 24-year-olds in our country seriously contemplated suicide this summer. 30%. Is that what surprised you is the depth of despair you felt from the social isolation or the unknown future or the family that tore apart when you were living with them for the past six months? What has this disorientation exposed in you? If you go back to Jeremiah 29 and we ask the question, what did their disorientation expose or reveal in them? What surprising things that they would have been surprised about? You could sum it up really under the phrase of they self-medicated with false hopes. It's a steady kind of self-medication of false hopes. That's how they were going to get through this cataclysmic situation that they were living in and didn't know how to get out of. Self-medicating these false hopes. They were so desperate that they latched on to any good news possible. It's been fascinating this summer to watch pharmaceutical companies that announce, we found a vaccine. And you know what happens? The stock goes, and then the next day, boom. Because everybody realizes, oh, well, that was just a trial one, and actually a lot of people got sick, and it was only marginally helpful. We are so desperate for hope that we latch on to any shred of it. So did the Jews. Do you know what their hope was? False hopes from false teachers if you go back a few chapters in Jeremiah, I'll save you the time. They basically said this, don't worry about it. Babylon's going to fall in two years. Don't even unpack your suitcase. We're not going to be here long. Let's just live at the edges of Babylonian society. No engagement with them, no serving them, no loving them. We don't know where God is. It seems like he's abandoned us, but let's just kind of tuck our head and grin and bear it until pretty soon we get to go back home, back to normal. That's what the false prophet said. And God said, don't listen to them. I didn't send them. They're lying to you. They're not speaking on my behalf. So the main driving force of life for the Israelites in their situation of disorientation was, how do I get out of this? How do I get back to normal? Now, the problem with that is a couple problems with that. Number one, The false hopes that they and we self-medicate with are all horizontal hopes. It cuts you off from God. That was why God had such a problem with the false prophets. They're cutting you off from your only hope, which is me, your maker, your sustainer. And they're pointing you to these horizontal hopes. Hear me out here. They're pointing you to, in our moment, science, technology, ventilators, vaccines, politicians, When you bring in all the injustice and inequity and systemic stuff, legislative platforms, political parties, elections, put your hopes in these things. They'll deliver you out of this. Don't worry. No need to engage vertically with your maker. No need to scrutinize yourself and say, have my hopes been genuine and legitimate and life-giving or not? 
Just keep your head tucked down. Stay in your lane. We've got what it takes to get through this by ourselves. I'm not saying all of those things are not helpful. I'm thankful for science. I'm alive because of it and technology. I'm glad some of you are giving your lives to learn how to continue to serve in those fields. But science isn't God. And if nothing's been proven in the past six months, that's been proven. How has it helped us? And you say, well, just wait, just wait. Friends, human history has been waiting on science to deliver us from death and sadness and decay and disease. It fixes this. There's another one. It's great. It's a tool. It's a gift of God. It's not God. Same with technology. Same with politics. Same with platforms. Great tools sometimes. Bad gods that can't deliver the way they promise. So that's the problem with these false hopes and self-medicating with it, is it cuts you off from engaging with him. God says down in verse 12 to his people, when you pray to me, I'll hear you, presuming you're not praying to me in the middle of this. It's a monologue in your head. How to to self-sustain through this and get by until I can get back to my life of independence. He's saying, call out to me. The other reason that this is problematic, these false hopes we self-medicate with then and now, is ask people in your friend groups who were actually aware of how bad the old normal that we got catapulted out of in March and in May Memorial Day weekend, ask people who were acquainted with how terrible that normal was if they want to go back. This is when you ask your African-American friends or friends who've experienced injustice, inequity, and you ask them if they want to go back to pre George Floyd world, where with almost impunity, people can suffocate other people, where Ahmaud Arbery can be murdered and three months later, still nothing has happened. Who wants to go back to that? And then you add into that, who wants to go back to the world where you and me, I'll I'll get at the front of the line and say I'm guilty, where you and me had attached our lives to the faintest glimmer of hope as if it could sustain us. Friends, do you really want to go back to the way things were? The way you were? The way we looked at these horizontal things and kind of went our own way from God? What if what is happening, what God is doing with his people here is what God does with his people all the time? Like a firefighter who saves a family out of a carbon monoxide-filled home and pulls them out into the cold rain of the night and they say take me back to my warm cozy bed I don't want to be out here in the rain it's dark and he says no you're not going back to that normal because that normal was suffocating you and it was suffocating your neighbors and we're not going back what if that's what God is doing with his people here expelling them from a normal that was not nearly as lovely as you and I thought it was. And bringing us into the possibility and potential of a new normal with him where he has recalibrated us and reoriented us to reality. What if what's going on now, and by the way, I'm not trying to play prophet. I don't know what God's reasons are behind what's going on. I don't pretend to know. And I'll tell you in a second, I don't think we need to know. But I'm saying a fruit of what we're going going through, a consequence of what we're going through, is a reorientation to reality. This is the way the world has always been, with fractures, broken, dissolving. 
and God is in the midst of it at work for his people. Would you be willing to engage with God if he is present in this kind of chaos working? Would you take well to what he says in verse 12? When you call upon me, come and pray to me and I will hear you. Might you seek him? Whether you know him or not, and I know we have a room full of UGA. When I was in your shoes, I didn't, this didn't track with any of this stuff. I didn't really believe it. But would you, if that's you, or you, if you know him and have loved him for years, will you seek him in this? Knowing that he's seeking you through this? Uh, These are hard things to do, especially if maybe you don't know where you stand with God because you might be asking the bigger question, well, if God is in control of this, if, if it wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar that led his people into exile, but God said, I drove my people into exile. And if you're saying it's not just a random disease strain that got loose, but God is sovereign and supreme and he's in, somehow in control of this? And you're saying, well, then why would I pray to him? Why seek him? Why don't you stop this if you're good and if you're powerful? You know what's interesting to me is in in this letter to the exiles, God doesn't clarify all the questions they had to have been asking. Questions like, why? Their situation was unique, by the way. They had a little bit more clarity there. You're godless living. You've abandoned me. You oppress the poor. You don't care about justice. You don't seek me. They were being disciplined. I'm not saying that's happening here, but... God was sparse with details on why. He was sparse with details on here's all the details about exactly when I'm going to bring you out of this and how it's going to work and exactly what's going to come next week and next month. Nothing. Very vague. But do you know what he does clarify with laser precision? Who he is to his people. Who he is to you. Where he's going to be when all hell is breaking loose. That's what he clarifies. He clarifies I have a plan, which is to say I'm in control. He clarifies that he and his people have a future together that does not involve all of this, that he's going to bring us out of. That's what he clarifies, but not the other stuff. So that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. I have a friend I was talking to the other day. He is estranged from his family. Lots of bad stuff happened in his birth family. Abuse, abandonment. Parents kind of rejected him at an early age and gave him away to relatives. And um, he, he has, doesn't have obviously much contact with his family, though he's attempted to reconcile. There's not, that's not been reciprocated. And so what happened the other day that led to us talking is he got a letter from his little sister. Some of his siblings are still in that situation. Little younger sister. And his little sister wrote him a letter, and she doesn't know what's really going on in her house, what her parents did to her older siblings. And she goes, you've really hurt me. Why don't you ever call? Do you know how much the silence has hurt over the years that you never come by? How, how hurt I am at our family having to be broken like this and not together? She said, I want a relationship with you. And uh, he and I were talking, and he's like, what do I write? I know the story, but if I, if I tell her everything right now, it's going to put her in immediate danger. My parents could, could twist and manipulate all the stuff that they hear and turn her even more against me. She's not old enough to connect the dots cognitively. What do I say? You know what he said? 
he wrote a letter back, and it was, it was unbelievable. And he, and he said, my heart broke when I read your letter because I know your pain is real. I'm so sorry this is the way you had to grow up. It's not the way it should have been. And I know you've been hurt by me not being around, and I hurt by not being around too. But I want you to know this. I love you, and I think of you every day, and I have every day of my life since you've been alive. And there's coming a day soon when I'll be able to tell you more. And I hope it makes sense then. But right now, you have to trust me that I'm for you and I love you. Now, his little sister is going to get that letter and in some ways have some key critical things clarified. But in other ways, it's going to raise more questions, right? But why? Why has it got to be this way? Why can I know everything now? Such it is with God and his people, God and us. Apparently, all the questions that we have and the details that we think we need to know is not, in fact, need to know information. Perhaps we wouldn't know what to do with it. Perhaps somehow it would damage us or send us on our own way. But friends, whether you know God or not, what he clarifies is that he is a God who is in control. He is a God who controls all of these forces and factors and dynamics. And he is one who pursues his people. He is one who can change the future of his people. He is one who hears his people. He is one who intervenes on behalf of his people. What is the ultimate proof that God is for you? Jeremiah 29, 11, it's like everybody's life verse. They're like, I love this verse, and they don't realize the the brutal context of it. God is comforting a people that don't know which way is up. They have vertigo. They don't know how to get through tomorrow. And God says, for I know the plans that I have for you and me. Plans not to harm you. I know you think I'm harming you. I know you think what I'm doing is evil. Plans to prosper you. Plans for us to be reunited. But here's the critical thing you have to know tonight. This isn't just a generic promise that God kind of throws out indiscriminately to everybody and says, hey, don't worry about it. This is a promise that only comes through Jesus and only comes through Jesus because, like my buddy who told his little sister, there's coming a day when I'll reveal more to you that will enable us to be reconciled. Hundreds of years after this letter is written and the people of God hear it, God reveals more. And it's what we're spending the whole rest of the fall semester looking at, Jesus, who John says in chapter 1, is the word of God and is in control and is under control. And he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Among who? Us. Where? Here. In this stuff that we've spent so much time talking about, this darkness, this is where he came to dwell. Into exile, Jesus came to bring his people back. Now, who are his people? Those who see their need of him. Those who realize my whole life is a long litany of self-medication, self-salvation. Grin and bear it. Get through it. But to what end? Where are you going? What's your trajectory? What normal are you trying to get back to? The normal God is interested in taking you back to isn't early March. It's a new you with a new heart that wants to seek him, wants to pray to him, that loves him and is enabled to love him. It's a new dynamic with him where you're clean because of what he's done for you in Jesus. 
Jesus experiencing the worst of what this world has to offer for crimes he didn't commit, for things you and I did, to take you out of exile and to bring you back home with him. That's how these promises come true. And that's the only way they come true. Jesus makes this all about him. What are you doing with him? False hopes we self-medicate with or we come to him. I want to end with just a few sentences of application. What are you supposed to do with tonight's message? What did God tell his people to do in Babylon? First, he said, this is going to be longer than you think. Gosh, I hope this isn't 70 years. But he says it's going to be longer than all these false teachers are telling you. There is no simple solution. You're going to have to learn how to live and walk with God through this suffering. Not trying to find shortcuts and exits from the suffering. And he says, unpack your bags. And he says, put down roots. And he says to the people in Babylon something that's less applicable to us, but he's like, marry, have kids, open up a business. This is home, he says. This is a place where you can thrive because I am God. And where God is, prosperity happens and thriving happens and healing happens. So friends, this fall, my encouragement to you from this passage is unpack your bags, plug in, talk to people tonight because they're lonely and isolated and they need friends. Join one of these RUF circles. Engage in this city and the systemic problems in our city that need your help. Humble yourself and seek God. And if you need help with that, go hang out with Noah in the lobby or Hannah in the lobby after. Come talk to any of us. Let me pray. Oh God, we pray for your help in this. We pray that you would show us clearly Jesus as the deliverer out of these terrible exiles of a fractured world where none of these horizontal hopes can actually deliver us, but you don't not just can, but have and will create faith in our hearts. Make your gospel plausible and believable and beautiful to us. We pray in your name. Amen.